Oh, oh, T.C. Hey, that's that's cool. cool. You got a podcast? Well, I didn't didn't know that. That's cool. Now you do. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are back. Oh, that's cool. OTC's foremost podcast on all the great people that you work with here at OTC. Uh, I, of course, am Jared Durden, and with me, as always, is me, Andrew Crocker. How you doing, sir? I am fantastic. How that's are you? Good. I'm doing great. I'm doing excellent. Although I was, th- you ever listen to our old episodes? Oh, all the time. Oh, I do too. I listen to it all the time. And I was listening to our episode with Craig Granger. And at the end of the Craig Granger episode, you you made him cringe. You triggered him when you mispronounced. Uh, oh, I'll, I'll do it. You, you you attempted this time. No, thank you. Render pest. I'll stick with render it's pest. Render pest. Okay. But there but there was a there was a actual scientific name for it that you said to his face. Oh yeah, I don't triggered him to now. his face, and that got me thinking. Everybody in a different field has to have a different answer. Anybody listening to this, feel free to comment on social media. As a physics guy. What is something a layperson says to your face about physics that triggers you, that cringes you a little bit? Uh, I've got so many the, things in politics. Gravity. So a Go lot away. of times, just, just okay, so we, we, when you talk about, here, here's what it is, 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 is just using the word gravity because there is acceleration due to gravity, gravitational energy, gravitational force, gravitational field, right? And so colloquially, we use the term gravity. I think what people usually are referring to is the rate at which things fall, the acceleration due to gravity, right? Yeah, are they are in this conversation that you're quoting right now, yeah. are they quoting actual gravity or are they using it like, I don't think you understand the gravity of the situation? Uh, no, no, no. Talking about it in, in the context of physics. And so that's the issue, though, right? The, the word, they're using it more colloquially like you would, oh, you don't understand the gravity of the situation, right? That has this, this definite meaning and this purpose. While in physics, though, just saying gravity isn't specific enough to the situation, right, to be able to actually describe what you're talking about. So that one usually gets me. Are you a, <laughs> when somebody talks about physics with you, or when somebody, maybe somebody doesn't even know you're a physics person, do you well actually people? And you're like, well, actually. I really try hard not to. And it's, it's kind of context dependent. More, than, more often than not, I'm excited when someone wants to talk about it. Um, usually in, in like a public setting, if someone finds out what I do, they, they like to talk about black holes. That's like big things and cool things, you know, and, and I'm all for it. What I don't like, and, and one of the reasons why uh, I helped and it found it really important and continue to kind of redesign physics course for non-majors is more often than not when I say, oh yeah, I, I teach physics, they go, ugh. Because people have had these experiences in physics classrooms, right, where they, they don't have necessarily a good time. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, if people want to talk about it, I will not, well, exactly them. I will say, oh, what else do you think? What else do you think? And then if I have the opportunity, right, you, you show them other examples or you, you talk about things in a context that they can kind of learn from how you use the language, right? Yeah, I, I was thinking about it. There's, like physics, there's so many things that when lay people discuss politics with me there are so many things that can not set me off as the wrong phrase using your language what's the cringy political thing i would say when somebody tells me that republicans prefer republics and democrats prefer democracy that they're just going off the people don't understand those party names are just team names that might as well be the chiefs and the bills those are just team names they have their own team colors sure they have their own mascots Right, because the elephants, the Republican have the awesome, amazing elephants, like the best animal on earth. Well, that's not true. Octopus is the best animal on earth, but uh, elephants are great too. And then the Democrats went with uh, the donkey. So they have, they're just teams. That's what they. Who picked those? Do you know? There is a, um, we need to get Miss Bump back on the pod, but elephant is beyond me. But you have to go back to. I think it was, it was some crotchety old Democratic president. Maybe our guest knows. It was some crotchety old Democratic president whose, criti- whose critics often called him the not kind word for donkey. And so ah. he's like, I'll show you. I'll make it the logo. He of the- owned it. He yeah, he, down. yeah, he went into it. Which to me, purposefully calling yourself something terrible to spite your enemies is the most American thing I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> the most American thing I can think of. I, there are so many... <laughs> 
Because I remember back in 2016, Hillary Clinton, when she was running against Donald Trump, referred to his supporters, a bunch of his supporters, as a basket full of deplorables. Do you remember that ridiculous yeah, yeah. phrase? And I can't tell you how many Facebook pages I saw that were like, we're the deplorables of the United States. Like, I'm like, that's American right there. And sure enough, one of our major political parties has the donkey as its... <laughs> It's not all bad, though. You learn in Sunday school, Jesus rode a donkey into Can Nazareth. I add, if we, uh, referring to this as the pod, that's going to be a cringy thing for me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I Actually, I think that's I'm the first you. time I've called that. <laughs> I think I was in a rush to get the point B on that. So, uh, Fair enough. Uh, another episode, Jeffrey J- uh, uh, Johnson. Um, I had one of his students who's in his podcasting class reach out to me and came and interviewed me, and I was on a student podcast today, which I thought, it was awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. How was that? Uh, it was really fun. Great question. Had this Good cool interview. little handheld recorder. He did it all. It's all portable. It was neat. Uh, great. I just, hey, if any of you are listening, bring me on. I'd love to be a guest. <laughs> so real- I, I still have it in for Jeff Johnson. He's got to do a rock farm with me. I got, I got to do like a Tom Waits episode with him. Je- Jeff Johnson, call me. Have your people call my people. Maybe season two or season three, maybe. I don't know. Just work me in. <laughs> So you had something you wanted to do real quick before we get to our guest. Uh, you had an I messed up. I did. First of all, I called it a pod. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's an I messed up from about three minutes ago. But in our episode with Selinsky, which just aired, these are obviously we wait. We sit on these for a couple weeks. Before Michelle we Selinsky. Yes, Michelle Selinsky, the great Michelle Selinsky of Veterans Upward Bound. I had quoted, I told her that... In Germany, after you graduate high school, you have mandatory military service you have to serve. That was true at one point. It has not been true for decades, though, in Germany. It is true in other countries. In Israel, it is true for one year. I had a good friend that uh, shared that experience with it and, and, and enjoyed it. Uh, didn't continue service. Went on to, uh, uh, he was at jury getting a degree in chemistry. But but the larger thrust of my point stands. But I, I, I imagine any... German-American faculty members or German enthusiasts, Germanophiles, whatever you might call them, I imagine they may have just like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's true. In that moment, I didn't know what I was talking about. So touche. I screwed up. (laughs) So we have with us a very special guest today, um, the chancellor of the college, Dr. Hal Higdon. How are you today, sir? I'm great. How are you? I am fantastic. Um, we, feels, it feels very official in here. It feels very official. It does. It, it looks official. <laughs> At least by this podcast standards. I just found it interesting. The student had everything in one little piece of equipment, and you have this giant board, and yes. you're very analog. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, this is the, uh, the uh, caveat we share with all of our listeners, is that I have, by default, ended up as the tech guy of, of this. I am not. I am just an avatar. The tech guys are behind me, helping me out every step of the way. I understand. So, uh, to start off with, um, something that a lot of our listeners maybe haven't had the chance to do is to um, sit down with you and and, and ask um, some just questions about you. Okay. Uh, so, we'd like to get to know you a little better. What? Um, tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got here. Well, I grew up in a town called Decatur, Alabama. It's on the south bank of the Tennessee River about 35 miles south of the Tennessee line in what we call the Tennessee Valley. Most people are familiar with Huntsville, which mm-hmm. is the home of NASA. And so uh, our town and that in Decatur and Huntsville are kind of like Springfield, Nixa, Ozark. It's one metropolitan area. And my family's been there since the early 1800s. Um, and I went to the University of Alabama, studied business, and then uh, got into higher ed through the workforce development HR field, and then was in Mississippi for 13 years and did my master's and PhD there. And your master's was in? Higher ed. Higher ed and PhD as well? Yeah. So what, what did you do uh, as an undergrad? Undergrad was business. Um, I grew up in a family business, small family business, and so my plan was to go and uh, come back and go to work in that, and I did, and um, working 80 hours a week for your uh, family is... Um, not always as much fun as you think it sounds like. Uh, what kind of business? It's a sign, uh, rubber stamp, seals, marking device business, and um, we work very hard and um, for you know not a lot of pay. Sure. So the world of higher education seemed better hours, getting off at Christmas, things like that. 
And so I made the jump and uh, loved it. That was in 91. Um, 93, I moved to Mississippi uh, on the Gulf Coast. I was there from 93 to 06, finished my doctorate in 99, and then came here in 2006. So I'm on my 16th year at OTC. Wow. How many Christmases did you work? A lot. What's it like working on Christmas? Uh, my, my, you wouldn't know. <laughs> my, my wife does. Uh, we have celebrated, I think, a true Christmas morning yeah. like once in 10 years. Uh, what's it? What's it? Well, we you I, feel the Yuletide. Well, and I say we worked at Christmas. We worked everything but Christmas Day. So, you know, close at noon on Christmas Eve and then take Christmas Day off and then you're back the next day. And um, the first year that I worked in higher education, I thought I'd die and God to heaven because um, I got off a couple of weeks of Christmas. And, um, that's something we tried to keep alive. You know, higher ed is not the highest pay, but the quality of life, I think um, we try to make up for that. And I think having Christmas break and fall break and spring break, and I know the taxpayers may feel like that that's probably over generous but then we look at what we pay our faculty and staff and i would say it's pretty fair there have been studies about that about categories of jobs and what would you say quality of life life satisfaction yeah. so there have been satisfaction surveys and routinely among the highest scores not always the highest but routinely among the highest tend to be college instructors right. and part of it is because as you said you do get that family time you do get those yeah. holidays very importantly, at least to me as a dad, very flexible hours. Yeah. God forbid something happens at school. I've you know I have I've had I've gotten that phone call a couple yeah. of times, and you need to, to 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 be there for them. You got to pull a lot of strings at a nine to five to make that happen. That you and I simply don't have to pull as much. The only downside to that is that whatever parent works for a college or a school is the default one they call. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it irritates me sometimes. And it, frankly, it's a it's a female issue that the female often works in education. So it's automatic that her job is lesser than or in your case, your, your job is lesser than than the person who works in corporate because our benefits are more flexible. Hours are more flexible. So it's always well, she comes and picks up Johnny. She comes and picks up Susie instead of him so that's one of my pet peeves is that corporate assumes if the spouse works for a college or a school district they automatically have flexible hours and we want our people to be um, valued just as much as if you work at the bank absolutely and those hours i mean even though flexible though they may be they can be packed they can be packed i mean just burning an afternoon well and hours at home grading papers and i don't know about you but i probably work as much in the evenings and at home as i do during the day Um, but that just i'm doing it from home yeah after after the kids go down yeah and and, you know and that's that's changed over time and and now the reality as an instructor is is you're on call almost 24 hours a day you are right as 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 things have evolved now um office hours have moved on to zoom a lot of questions and things are dealt with email we don't really see students as often just physically come into office hours so that's really kind of expanded that time you have been here 16 years Mm mm-hmm what are a couple of the big sea changes you've seen over the decade and a half? Uh, one of them is when I got here in 06, OTC was founded in 1990. We're a very young school. We were still considered uh, not quite sure what we were. So if you were 70 years old, you only had the last 15, 16 years of your life that we existed. Um, and I watched, it took about 10 years from probably till. 15, 16, you got to thinking about it. Well, if you're 50 and we've been around 20, 25 years, you think we've always been here. So the level of acceptance of the college in the last five years, especially, has just skyrocketed. It's no longer um, just OTC or you're at the technical college. Um, The um, haughtiness of some of our sister institutions as they've struggled and we haven't has helped that as well. But, you know, if you're 40 years old and the college is 31 years old, you assume we've always been here. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about the perception of the average person now is we might have well been around 100 years because they've known it all their life. That's why we passed a tax levy in 18 so easily. That's why we um, have such good uh, support. And that's why we have great articulation agreements with the universities because they can't live without us now because they need all of our students. It helps that some of our alumni can become very distinguished members of the community as well. 
Exactly. You look at Paul Sunday, who is um, obviously the big whiskeys is his business um, alumni, met his wife at Graff Hall. She's an alumni, and now he's on our board of trustees. And there's no bigger supporter of OTC than he. Met her at Graff Hall? Yeah. How about that? In a class? Yeah. Uh, in a hallway. <laughs> and um, evidently, um, she, he noticed her for some reason, and she noticed him. And um, I think he tells the story that he chased her until um, she told him, come ask me out. So it was a case of, I think she was a little more bold than he was. So interestingly enough... You said he owns Big Whiskies? Yeah. Interestingly enough, I met my wife at a Big Whiskies. How's that for a little yin and yang? And- uh, well, uh, Big Whiskies is one of my favorite places, especially on football Saturdays. I go have a Bloody Mary and a little late brunch and watch Alabama play football. It's nothing better than so that. So let's go down this hall. Uh, <laughs> your free time, right? So uh, uh, when you're not here, and, and I know, uh, I remember uh, uh, last year, Daniel Ogunyemi spoke on this idea of if it not being work-life balance anymore, now we talk about work-life integration, mm-hmm. right? And it's, sometimes it's hard for us to separate ourselves from what we do. Uh in your free time, how do you unwind? What are your kind of hobbies? What don't we know about uh, Dr. Hal Higdon? Well, it, probably not surprising. I'm a big reader. Um, and when I'm in the car, I have an audible book on. Um, um, obviously, um, one of my f- things are presidential le- leadership. I've gone in order. Lately, I read um, two, no, three books on um, Eisenhower, uh, two on Truman just finished. No, th- I take that back. Three on Roosevelt, two on Truman, one on Eisenhower, and then I just finished a book about the presidency of George Washington and the seven pillars of power that he set up. And the so, I, you know, I'm a history buff. Um, I can't say I'm a historian because I don't have a degree in that, but I love it. So I spend a lot of time reading, and then I've been um, playing a little more golf, taking lessons. And um, then just, um, you know, I hate to say it, but work is kind of my hobby, too. So I don't feel like I ever actually quit. Now, um, I don't mean to tell tales out of school here, but I have it on high authority that you were a mean fantasy football player as well. Well, I am in first place right now in the (laughs) league. So um, it's all about drafting and not being too loyal to your own school. The first couple of years, I was too loyal to my own school so i had to learn how to drop those alabama players when they didn't perform (laughs) yeah so um, and and i'm a big football fan as well yeah Uh, and alabama is your team i take it then yeah yeah and um they asked me what professional team i'm a fan of and i said alabama we we, we pay (laughs) well just like a pro team there's a there's all i'm a big nfl fan yeah there's a running debate every year there's a terrible like a one in 16 yeah like jacksonville somebody that bad (laughs) and they're like if you match them up against alabama who would win and the my honest answer is the nfl team every time yeah alabama would give them a run for their money a couple of those years but the the level of talent is obviously completely different although with urban meyer coaching i would probably take anybody playing jacksonville (laughs) (laughs) so something we'd like to ask um to get to know people better is um Share with us uh, uh, an ins- a, a hero of yours or someone that inspires you, um, uh, someone that our listeners not, might not be aware of that's important to your life or to your success. Well, I mean, I, you know, when you grow up, uh, I was the youngest, I mean, the oldest child. Um, both my parents were only kids, so I didn't have a lot of aunts and uncles that were my age. They were really my grandparents' brothers and sisters, and my grandparents all had tons of brothers and sisters. And I had these aunts and uncles that I just thought were, you know, when I was a little kid, just gods. You know, they, they were just cool and they knew things and they, you know, it was in the South. They farmed. They were carpenters. They just did things. And I, you know, did woodworking and all that. And so I was always amazed at people who knew how to do everything. My grandfather could hitch a team. He could plow a field. He could build a house. He could do anything with a sixth grade education. And then... I have a PhD and I couldn't build a box out of, uh, you know, pieces of plywood without tearing them apart. So I've always had a real uh, affinity for people who have that innate ability to build and to do and to, you know, people don't realize, but a good carpenter is an arts 
is an artsman. I mean, they, they're really an artist. And so that's one thing. And then, you know, as far as leadership, um, I was just saying right before I came in here, my first presidential election, I voted in a presidential election was 1980. And um, I was a Ronald Reagan, young Republican. Um, and, and he uh, came to the University of Alabama when he ran for re-election in 84, got to meet him. And, um, and you look at his path to, um, you know, son of an alcoholic, strong mother, which, uh, as Andrew knows, there's a lot of strong mothers, weak father politicians out there. Uh, his father was uh, really problematic, moved every couple of years, but he had a strong mother. And so Reagan was one of my big idols growing up. And then I've really gotten to be a fan of Eisenhower and Truman. I've been to both their libraries. I give to both libraries. And you think about that we had a period of 16 years, basically the end of World War II through 1961, where two men who grew up, failed fathers, strong mothers, 100 miles from each other, ran the world. And, you know, one from Kansas and one from uh, Missouri. So I, that's a long answer to a short question. That's a great answer. One of the most prominent politicians of the 21st century was Barack Obama, who yeah. uh, his father was a craziest life story ever his yeah. father was a kenyan goat herder yeah and his mother was a a, 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 a a woman from kansas yeah how does that even happen but of course he gets airlifted in a humanitarian thing they meet yeah. and all of a sudden fast forward 50 years most powerful man on the planet but that's a that's a and just to reiterate your point very strong presence from his mother growing yeah. up uh compared grandmother. to absent very important her grandmother um I, his grandmother i yeah. read his autobiography when it first came out and it was one of the best ones i've read um you know a lot of people write about themselves not everybody is as introspective as uh, obama was but you know his grandmother no education became a vice president of a major bank in honolulu basically raised him and um, his grandfather as well. But, um, again, that pattern shows uh, uh, for a lot of great people having at least one parent who is that strong, strong role model. I know you have uh, you are communicado with <clears throat> senators and the governor. Have you met uh, up since Reagan mm -hmm. in your current position? Have you met a president or two? Yeah, I met George W. Bush um, it ties into OTC. So I interviewed at OTC on a Wednesday in May. Uh, we had been hit by Katrina the year before. And President Bush was coming to be our speaker at graduation on Thursday. And it was the first sitting president to ever speak at a community college, which is sad to say that huh. it took till 2004 or 2006 for that to happen. So I flew out of Springfield, and we were the last plane that landed in Gulfport, Mississippi, before they closed airspace for Air Force One. My wife came and got me. We f went into the arena. The whole first floor of the arena was washed out, and he came and spoke and got to meet him. And he was just um, um, very, very down to earth. You know, what you see him now, especially now that he's left office, uh, there are no heirs put on at all he's just a very very down-to-earth person but and then i met vice president cheney who's just as odd as you would think he would be just uh he came uh, we had a military ball every year that we always went to and you know we met bob dole there colin powell and cheney was the only one who just seemed irritated to be there <laughs> i just when you are as elbow deep and everything that makes the world tick for as long as he was. Yeah. I don't know how you could ever be well-adjusted again. Yeah. Well, um, he, he was just, you could tell he was sitting vice president. You can tell he had better things to do. <laughs> and he wanted that dinner to get over. And he wanted to get out of there and get back on Air Force Two. Uh, where Bob Dole, uh, we, um, he and Liddy Dole, were, we built air um, frigates and um, LHDs at Ingalls Shipbuilding. And... They had to drag him away from the thing because he wanted to stay and talk. And then Colin Powell was the same way. So it's just very, very different people. Given kind of this, the state of things today, and uh, is there any insight that you have, uh, being as involved as you have in, in local politics and, and beyond that, um, just kind of from your perspective, is there, is there any, any kind of uh, wisdom or perspective that you have about the current climate of politics is it as 
strange or different as it's talked about? You know, it's, it's usually presented as mm-hmm. this is just so unusual. Yeah. Or uh, is there common threads? Is there is there any kind of comfort you might give? Or I would say or, people need to get a, take a pause. Um, you know, and Andrew knows this better than I do, but this is way not as bad as it could be. If you, you know, you look at the 1840s, you look at, well, look at the whole election of uh, John Quincy Adams when it was thrown into the House of Representatives and basically stolen from Andrew Jackson. Uh, the whole Jackson upheaval. And then all the bad presidents, James Buchanan, and then all the bad presidents after um, Lincoln. And, and look at everything we went through in the 1800s. You look at what was happening um, when Roosevelt was elected in 32 and where we were, the Communist Party was a strong party. The Ku Klux Klan was a strong group. We're not nearly as bad. I think we just have a lot of whiners on both sides. I'm, I'm tired of the left and the right saying this is the worst ever. We have the highest standard of living we've ever had. We actually have an economy that's doing great. You can't drive a block without seeing a sign that says, I see one right now, it says, now hiring, hiring over by Walgreens. People need to get a life. I actually had that same thought several <laughs> times during the Trump administration. Because before I get to that thought, I do want to echo that. Obviously, there are a thousand ways we yeah. could get better, a million ways we could get better. But um, the amount of deaths we see from war across the world, yeah. lowest it's ever been. Yeah. World global extreme poverty, lowest it's ever been. And over, I don't know how it's trending right now, but on a long enough timeline, it's trending mm-hmm. in the right direction. And so I, I really wish, I mean, we just got hit by a horrific pandemic. We were right. in the middle of it. We got the vaccine within a year. So, I mean, yeah. we're, grand scheme of things, most people in history would choose this era over theirs. I, I agree. And the vaccine is a great example. And, you know, we got it within a year, but we've been working on it for 25 years. When I hear people who are uh, worried about the vaccine, they say, well, they only took a year. No, they have been working on this technology for 25 years. And, you know, and everybody gets so political. Um, Biden doesn't want to give Trump credit for Operation Warp Speed. He deserves credit. Did he deserve criticism for not maybe being better at it? But he, he did it. Biden has been better at rolling it out, giving credit for that. I'm just tired, and I think the average person is tired. Everything has to be filtered through the GOP lens or the, the Democratic lens. You, we just need to look at it a lens. Did they do a good job, do the bad job? Did Biden mess up on Afghanistan? Yes. Did Trump start down that road? Yes. Should Obama have upped it? If you read the um, um, last book I I read on that issue, um, you know, Biden tried to talk Obama out of putting those extras in there. Out of the surge. Yep. Yeah. And it was because he got boxed in by the generals because he was a young president. So every president messes up. Every president does well. And I get so tired of people, you know, if Ronald Reagan did a good job, I got sick of Tip O'Neill, could never give him credit. And, it, and it's always that way. And I think we need, as Americans, we need to quit looking at everything. You know, I have friends that are Trump supporters. I have friends that are Biden supporters. They are loath to say anything positive to each other about that person. And I think that's, and if you go back, I was just reading the era, during the era between the end of the Revolutionary War, when we were on the Articles of Confederacy, every state considered themselves a nation. Their country was Virginia. You know, and George Washington spent eight years trying to get us to consider it as a country, and we're starting to move back. We have attorney generals who are saying, well, the law doesn't affect Missouri. We're back to this state's rights thing. Well, I think George Washington and Alexander Hamilton answered that question 200 years ago. Federal law is supreme. I don't care who you are. And so I think we need to get away from this parochialism, this um, regionalism, and this I'm in Missouri or I'm in Texas or I'm in Kansas or I'm in New York. I'm going to walk away from what the Constitution says. So that's a pet peeve of mine. A couple different thoughts on what you just said. First of all, first thought, shout out to Dr. Vivian Elder, who made on that uh, vaccine uh, development, made that exact same point in our second episode. Yeah. Great episode. Second of all, I just wanted to cut back to something you had said about people hyperventilating a bit about the Mm -hmm. current political climate, not looking at a lot. I just remember this a ton during the Trump administration, which had its own set of problems. But I, I remember hearing this a lot from Trump critical friends of mine. They'd say this is like 1984. Like, have you read 
1984. They yeah. they torture people in the minister of Ministry of Love in yeah. 1984. Maybe take down the temperature. Well, people tend to pick up phrases and they don't understand what the phrase means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I you know, I was in high school in the late 70s, early 80s and you know, we had gas prices that went from 39 cents a gallon to $2 a gallon. You had to stand in line for days. I mean, G- Jimmy Carter came off as the worst president in 100 years. And he probably was one of the worst presidents. He was right about a lot of his stuff, but he just didn't know how to be a president. He tried to do everything himself. He turned out to be the best former president probably ever. But if you want to go back to oil embargoes, hyperinflation of 21%, uh, I had family in the construction business that went completely out of business during that time. And then you look at today, and, you know, I'm, I was born in 61, so I'm right at the end of baby boomers just before Xers. Um, the millennials and the Zs, and I guess you're both probably millennials. What are we? I'm a zennial, so I'm right in between the Xers and the millennials. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what I am. I could never figure, because X did never feel right to me. My wife always uses the term geriatric millennial, and yeah. I refuse to use that. I am a zennial. You're an elder. <laughs> yeah, elder, yeah. But I, I think they... Um, I think the biggest mistake we made in this country, and I see it now, is the lack of teaching history the way it should be taught and political science. I made I put a thing on Facebook. I said, all of our problems today is because we let coaches teach history and political science in high school. <laughs> I actually had a, a coach that taught in high school who we always knew we didn't have to worry about the lecture because he had read the book the night before just like we did. <laughs> so... I'm going to argue for for <laughs> mathematics as well because yeah. one of the one of the one of the things we see a lot in terms of misinformation is uh, <clears throat> people taking advantage of of the majority of Americans not understanding graphical representation. You're right, right. So they'll show you things a lot of times on small scales, mm-hmm. or they'll kind of pervert the scale in order to kind of communicate an agenda. Um, and also, I saw I cannot. I'm going to do this on I messed up. <laughs> there was this amazing speaker I saw at Drury, and he talked about one of the biggest issues um, that we are facing is that people don't understand the logarithmic function because it's this idea of we approach most of our problems as if they're linear, but our most severe your problems are actually exponential. Yeah. And so we we're if we wait until precipices to take action, it's too late, right? And like so, climate change. Like climate change is a great yeah. example. And I wish people would think more when it comes to problem solving, I wish people would think more probabilistically. Like sometimes you're making the choice, there's multiple there's rarely in life and in politics, since that's my specialty, a right and a wrong way to go. There's usually, there's a whole variety of options. Sometimes Mm -hmm. all your options are bad. And so you have to (laughs) think, you have to think, and that's kind of cuts back to an Afghanistan comment from Dr. Higdon, but, um, you know, you you have to think probabilistically. What's most probable to not be horrific or most probable to somehow work out? That's that's something I don't know what subject. And that's challenging, right? Because that was Einstein's big trouble with uh, the development of quantum mechanics. He famously said, uh, "God doesn't play dice with the universe," because Mm -hmm. in in the quantum field they were developing this understanding of wave functions as having a probability of being at some state, depending on how you observed it. Mm -hmm. I want to agree with you about the math because I watch people who they don't know the difference between a median and a mean. And that can be easily manipulated, right? Choosing yeah. which one you use. I actually, uh, when we worked on our um, equity funding formula for community colleges, I picked the one that was the most advantageous for us, and that's the formula I put forth, and nobody questioned it. Yeah. And then we redid it, and somebody else was in charge, and they used the median instead of the mean, and it wasn't as good for us, but I couldn't argue because they were right. But it's, <laughs> you know, as long as they didn't know the difference, I was fine. And with 11 educators, none of them mathematicians, I had Marla Moody who knew math, so she figured out the best formula for us, and it helped. But when uh, people argue against, uh, with you know, the science, and they want to take uh, a statistic that they see on the internet, and then they quote that statistic, and they don't even know what it means, it's it's very frustrating. And then even the um, even people on the national news. I'm shocked by how many times they don't understand what they're saying. People quoting scientists, you know, NBC, CBS, CNN, they, they get it wrong, and nobody seems to know it. 
you do because you're a mathematician, you're a physicist. But even I, from a lay point, understand you can't say it that way. People don't understand that increasing from 72% to 74% is not a a 2% increase. It's 2 percentage point increase. Mm -hmm. And so I hear that all the time. So I I think we, uh, somewhere along the line, um, have really let our educational system down in the K through 12 because we just don't require the rigor that we used to do. And I know I sound like an old uh, curmudgeon when I say that, but I think there's something to be said. You know, I still, I know when Columbus came to America, it was 1492, I learned the poem. You know, we had this philosophy for a while. There's so much information. We're going to teach you how to learn and then not teach you anything because you, you there's so much to learn. What we found out is people don't do optional. So people don't learn on their own. Very few do. We have to go back and to start really teaching people, this is what the Continental Congress is. This is what the Declaration of Independence did. This is what the Magna Carta means. This is what the United Nations means. And the same thing with mathematics. You, sometimes you just have to memorize and learn, and then you do, rather than just say, well, you're always going to have a computer. You're always going to have books, and you're going to read them. What we know is a lot of Americans don't read. If you do surveys, there's a lot of people who other than reading Facebook, that's the only reading they do. And that's scary. You know, that's that's one of the reasons why I will take an instructor over Google just about every time. Because yeah. I can find facts using Google. But what a great instructor can do, at least in my field, um, they don't just give you the facts. They give you the narrative. And the right. narrative implants those facts in you in a way that will make it easier for you to recall it later down the road. And it's situational. You know, you can say, you know, what year did Portugal uh, get rid of the monarchy? Well, why is that important? What's the context of that? What is the context in that in Portugal trying to fight off the Spaniards? And, and, and just, you know, I can ask Alexa anything I want, but that doesn't mean it has context. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you because we have you here today. We've yeah. been fortunate enough to talk before about the concept of tuition-free community college. Right yeah. now, it's getting a little bit of run in the national. Yeah, horrible idea. Your thoughts? Uh, if you look at what the Biden administration has proposed, it will absolutely decimate Missouri. Um, it is a bait and switch. Um, it starts out at 100 percent and goes to 80, 60, 40, 20. State legislatures are going to see that. They're not going to fall for it. So let's take the state of Missouri. This is the state that did not expand Medicaid because there was a match. And it was also actually much more generous. It was 100, but then it just barely went down. So if you think that the majority of state legislators are going to say, sure, we're going to put up our match, and then every year you're going to decrease the federal match and we're going to pick up more so in five years we're paying 100 percent of community college free it's going to bust our budget so what's going to happen is let's say missouri doesn't do it kansas doesn't do it illinois does it arkansas does it iowa does it so if you're a school on the arkansas border and you can offer let's say northwest arkansas down in um the what land of walmart they decide to do it so it's free to go there Crowder, you have to pay full tuition. Or St. Louis Community College, or you can go over to East St. Louis for free. So it's just, it's not free community college. There's no such thing as free. All they're saying is, we're going to make it free at first with the federal government picking up 100%, and then gradually the states. The easier thing to do, the Pell Grant program is the most successful post-World War II educational program we've ever done. What we need to do and this also will serve our four-year partners, take the Pell Grant, take the um, family contribution, and double it to where the amount of money you can earn as a family and still get a Pell Grant, let's double that. And let's double the Pell Grant. So let's say the Pell Grant goes up to seven, $8,000 a year. Then the universities will support this because it helps them. It would basically take the Pell Grant from being only the lower third of our 
population to about half, helps the middle class. You get above the middle class, they're, they're doing pretty good as, without, without it. So uh, the Missouri Community College Association, I wrote, a, I wrote up a statement last week. We adopted it. It'll go out next week. Our writing letters to our congressmen and women and senator opposing the free community college as proposed by the Biden administration. And I think Democrats and Republicans, legislatures, are going to see it as a budget buster. And I don't think it'll end up even coming to Missouri. I believe the proposal also wants to extend the length of time you'd have access to that Pell. Yes. Well, people don't, you know, we said something positive about Barack Obama. Well, now I'll say something negative. Uh, during the recession, um, the Congress, along with Obama, took away two semesters of Pell. They also did away with Summer Pell. And one of the things we have really to be proud of is uh, Roy Blunt led the fight for year-round Pell to bring it back as former university president. He and Lamar Alexander, who also was a university president, brought us back to year-round Pell, which is important. But we used to have more semesters. So we need to bring that back to go back to where right now you basically just have the four years. But we know students start and stop they come in, they make a bad decision. A lot of them may make a bad decision and go to Auburn University. And then they find out they hate it there and they want to transfer somewhere else. Well, that's two semesters maybe they've eaten up. So we need to go back to the way Pell was before um, the recessions of late 2000, so, 8, 9, 10. And, and to kind of reiterate this, you know, people sometimes hear what they want. Uh, you're not arguing against the idea of free community college or what it could do. The issue is there is a way in which it's sustainable and which it makes sense, and that's not what's being done. Well, first or of what's all, being proposed. Um, my dad always said there's no such thing as a free lunch. So if you're having lunch, somebody's paying for it. And, and we all want to say, well, the federal government's paying for it. But they are at first. It's just the proposal as written with opt-in by states who have to do matching. We have free community college in Missouri. We've had it since 1993. It's A+. Mm -hmm. It's a great program. We led the nation in that. What we don't have is for that 25 or 28 or 38-year-old who didn't go to college right out of high school, that's what we need. Mm -hmm. uh, Governor Parson tried to do that with the fast-track program, but the legislature messed it up and turned it into a loan program. But Tennessee has done a really good – Tennessee has this, what I call, A-plus for adults. Works great. And that's what we thought the Biden administration would go for. But what they've gone for is typical Washington thing. Look over here, I'm giving you this. And then, oh, by the way, it's going to decrease. And the other thing people don't realize, they'll tell us what our tuition is going to be, how much we can raise tuition. These are made by East Coast people who have very well-funded school districts in Massachusetts and New York and Delaware. They're not used to the Midwest where you don't fund schools. Frankly, we don't fund higher ed. We're 47th out of 50. And so they make decisions like the state puts a lot of money in higher ed. We don't even put a billion dollars in higher ed in Missouri out of a $32 billion budget. To think that we were going to come up with a couple of hundred million to make community colleges free while the University of Missouri is going to sit there with all the lobbying power and think that will happen, it's just not going to happen. So I try not to look at it through a philosophical term. I try to use the math, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the math doesn't add up. But if they would just do the Pell, what we're talking about, it's good for Missouri State, it's good for Drury, it's good for WashU, it's good for Mizzou, it's good for Harvard. But more importantly, it's good for the students. And that's what we're trying to do with the way we work at OTC. Is it good for students? Is it student-focused? Is it student-centered? It would not be good for students for us to opt out of the program and then be trapped in a state that does not pay for um, free community college when they can drive over the border. And then that will have a brain drain in Missouri, just like we saw with the Medicaid issue, with our hospitals suffering because when we didn't expand Medicaid, which that's, I understand why they didn't, but the federal government reduced what they paid on Medicaid, assuming you did take the uh, deal. And so our hospitals went from margins of operating with three and 2% to operating with 1%, which made it harder to recruit doctors, harder to recruit 
nurses. And so Mercy, Cox, all the hospitals in Missouri have suffered while Arkansas, Kansas, and Illinois have done well. And that's because the reimbursement by the federal government went down, but we didn't expand. Now, as of October, we did, but we'll see what happens. But um, there's consequences to doing nothing, and which is your point earlier. You know, your choices are not always yes, no, or maybe. Sometimes no answer or no decision is a decision. And we made no decision on Medicaid, and it hurt our rural hospitals. That's why there's not a rural hospital in um, Osceola where you stop to get the cheese. That's what the reason CMH has suffered in um, uh Bolivar. That's the reason Lamar Hospital was taken over by Cox. That's the reason Skaggs was taken over by Cox. That's the reason why several hospitals have had to be absorbed by Mercy is because we took all the money out of the system. And who did it hurt? But the very people who didn't want Medicaid expansion are the ones that were hurt by not doing it because they live in rural areas and they're poor. So it's a really, really vicious cycle. Let me ask you a serious question. <laughs> Gumby versus Mr. Ed, battle to the death. Who wins? Gumby. Why? Well, he can do anything. He can go into a book. He can change his form. Um, Mr. Ed, um, um, other than talking, I don't know that there's much he could do. Well, we, we have established early on in this podcast, and I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I have long argued that Gumby has this going away. And Pokey, too. <laughs> Correct. Is Pokey a part of the package? That's just unfair. Well, he's a horse. I just thought it made it more. Yeah, right. Then, then you actually have a one-to-one comparison yeah. to work with. We have established early on that Mr. Ed did on occasion show unnatural dexterity. Like Jared had told me that he rode a surfboard once. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're dealing with, like, essentially a super horse. Yeah. Well, it's like the movie Stand By Me where they're trying to argue whether it's Mighty Mouse or Superman. Well, obviously Superman will win because he's a real person. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. And Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Yeah. Sure, sure. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we actually brought you on to ask a question that um, when – this all started with a conversation I was having with um, Amy Bacon, um, and uh, I kind of talked to her about – what you might come on to talk about and mm -hmm. something I was surprised to find out about that you have uh, a lot of interest in, um, which lines up with what you told us that you, 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 you really um, appreciate history and on your yeah. own do a lot of reading. Um, so today, what we'd, what we'd really like to ask you about um, is uh, your understanding and knowledge of the English monarchy. You're somewhat of an expert, I hear. I am not an expert, but I have spent way too much time um, on it and have been to England and been to the castles and um, it's uh, fascinating because the, the whole English monarchy and I really only go back to probably um, William the Conqueror in 1066 but you know watching the development of the divine right of kings through the Magna Carta through the glorious revolution which was basically Cromwell killing everybody who had any sense and then getting rid of Cromwell and then the restoration. So um, I, I have uh, I spent a lot of wasted time thinking about uh, English history, but not just English history, Irish and also Scottish. Uh, I, when I went to England, um, I actually enjoyed Scotland more than I did England because it was just fascinating. But um, and, and then the current uh, monarch, I mean, you know, having been queen since she was 26 years old and you know 13 prime ministers eight or nine presidents she starts off with winston churchill and now she's got crazy boris johnson so it's just i find it fascinating from a history standpoint and also to look at the good and the bad and the weak because you know with the hereditary you would think they would all be but they've been several jumps you know george the first was german william and mary um, was what is he from the Netherlands? Or, yeah, um, he wasn't even English, but Mary was the daughter of a king. Then you've got the whole problem with Henry VIII, who was probably the worst king of England ever, but he's the best known, who killed his wives and destroyed the um, the church and created the Church of England. So it's just it's very morbid in some ways, but also fascinating. Let me let me um, Desert Island this. Okay, yeah. 
you are on a desert island with a well-written book about an English monarch of your choice. Well, the book I would want would not be on about a monarch, but be Winston, uh, Winston Churchill's History of the English-Speaking Peoples. And, of course, I'm a huge Winston Churchill fan. I can watch uh, The Darkest Hour over and over again. Sure. And um, so, but if you just had to read about one monarch, probably Elizabeth I, uh, because she, as a female, succeeded in a male world and uh, used the fact that she wasn't married to her political advantage until, you know, she was still courting people in her 50s and um, managed to hold her throne, grow the country, and basically um, put a lot of money and effort in the new world um, and did it all without ever marrying, which I thought think is fascinating. So you talked about the importance of, you know, you kind of described content knowledge when you talked about, yeah, you can know the dates and the names, but um, you said that, you know, context is really important. Yeah. So looking back at, you know, the research you've done and the understanding you have, what did you learn from that that influences your decision making, that influences uh, you as a person? Well, number one is if you look at leadership, whether it's a corporate or government, to the bold go the spoils. People say to the victory, but it, to the victor, but it's really to the bold. Who's willing to take a chance? If you're not a little bit of a gambler, how do you ever run for office? If you're not a little bit of a gambler, how do you ever? lead a group and you got to be willing to roll the dice and try something and that's something when I started here in 06 I told our team I said you know we're going to have the no harm no foul rule let's try it it doesn't work we say great we learn not to do that let's do something else I worked for a person one time who any mistake was the end of your career so everybody who worked for him when I got to work at that college nobody would try anything because if it didn't work then you got your head handed to you so what i always have noticed great leaders churchill's a good example roosevelt may be the best example which He's, roosevelt franklin teddy was kind of a i love teddy but he was a little nutty and he wanted to do everything himself franklin understood hiring great people he understood that francis perkins would Number one, the first female cabinet member. And number two, she knew what she was doing with labor. But he had Harry Hopkins. He surrounded himself with people who were smarter than himself. He had he did not have the ego where he was afraid if somebody was smarter than him that they wouldn't be able to do. So he hired all these fantastic people. Um, what the, the support he gave General Marshall, the support that he gave um, Dwight Eisenhower, who was basically a colonel when the world, world start, war started and never commanded anything to be Operation Overlord and Supreme Commander. But I have seen the worst leaders are those who try to hire people not as smart as themselves, and then they dumb down their organization. So I always try to emulate, hire people smarter than me, more knowledgeable than me, who and then get out of their way. You know, that reminds me of, uh, uh, I believe... It was former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg who was asked, what have you accomplished in your first year in office? And he says, well, I've hired all my deputies. And yeah. people don't understand the gravity importance of that task, as you just illustrated. Yeah. Uh, a question about the modern monarchy, because I've thought about this myself. Do you think it would benefit America to have like a first family, not politically powerful, but more PR powerful. I thought about this a little bit with mm-hmm. the Trump family because the Trump family by and large, other than their the political leanings, other than the political leanings, uh, which were controversial and c- continue to be of course, but other than their political leanings, that's a older attractive family mm-hmm. with, you know, star power. I was like, yeah. maybe what we need is like a, 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 an American monarchy of such. Well, we almost had that with the Kennedys for a while. But, um, you know, the, the, the beauty of the British system is that the head of state never expresses an opinion, just does ceremonial, does her work, does, you know, and once in a while she gets pulled into things because of get a hung parliament. But the national symbol never looks at the politics, where our national symbol is also our chief magistrate. I wouldn't want to change it, but it does make it messy. You can have a 
and, and well, you go back to we've had a lot of presidents who had problematic brothers, <laughs> mothers. Uh, Jimmy Carter had a brother, Billy, who was a raging alcoholic and probably had a lot of other issues. His mother was very outspoken. So, you know, and then and then Trump, you know, he had problematic kids. You look at Bo Biden. I've actually met Bo Biden. Um, and, How about that? Uh, during the Clinton, no, during the um, Obama administration, we were in Washington for a meeting. We were at a law firm, and he was there. His father had just become vice president, and they trotted him out to show off. But, I mean, Bo Biden is a huge millstone around the president's neck. And so that's the bad thing about having your head of state also be an elected person. But Americans uh, fought too hard for a long time to get rid of a monarchy. But I do think that, um, you know, we, we do I think we do have a political class. I mean, you think about the Bushes. The Bushes have been involved in U.S. government since Prescott Bush in the 1940s. So uh, the Kennedys are still around. The Bushes are still around. We still have Bushes yeah, elected. Yeah, George P. down in, in Texas. In Texas, yeah. yeah. And um, he's uh, Jeb's son. And then, uh, and then you know, the Clintons will probably be around a little bit. Um, you know, you never know about the Obama kids. But, uh, you know, there's always been an American political class. Look at Romney. His father was governor of uh, Michigan. He was governor of Massachusetts. He's now a senator from Utah. And frankly, about half the Republicans wish he was president. Uh, if uh, it wasn't clear that the former president was probably going to run again in 2024, it would not shock me if his son mm-hmm. ran. You know, so I, I've just I, I got a mailing thing asking for money from the son the other day. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just I know we resisted a monarchy, but mm-hmm. that monarchy told us who our governors <laughs> were. You know, uh, they taxed us a lot, which we don't like people who tax us. But if it's just a guy who go or, of course, a woman who Mm -hmm. goes on TV and waves, stands in a rose parade. Yeah, I did not recognize. I guess I just, you know, history, probably one of my my weaker disciplines. But I didn't recognize that the, the head of state for the monarchy never made a political stance. No. The, never the queen has been opinion. queen since 1954 and has never expressed a political opinion except once. And that was at the request of the government, um, the referendum on um, Scotland leaving. It was going down. They were going to leave the U.K. And so the prime minister, David Cameron, at that time asked her to intervene. So she was in Scotland, and a lady asked her, um, what do you think about the election? And she, it was well-scripted. She said, I think we all need to take a pause and really think about it. And the polls changed overnight. The beauty about not taking stands is when you finally do, people really t- pay attention. And, you know, um, and the exit polls showed that a lot of the, the Scottish people were afraid they would lose her as sovereign if they broke away from the UK. So um, the people who were pushing it said, oh, we'll keep her if we'll, we'll still be, she can be Queen of Scotland, but we won't be part of the UK. And then it showed that that was not a good idea and it died. So she very seldom expresses an opinion. And then even then it's at the request of government. But you know, the thing is, and every prime minister will say this, she has, she knows everything she reads everything that comes in the red boxes and she's seen all the prime ministers and she gives them great advice which they are not supposed to ever mention and she never says what they say so it's like having a confessor priest who will never tell a tale so it's a very strong powerful thing but it's also unique to her that doesn't necessarily mean that's the way some of her predecessors did Sure. So, so there is a, a sense of political influence in terms of her speaking to politicians, yeah. but never express. She speaks to the prime minister or the chancellor of this checker, but it's always confidential, and she never expresses opinion to the public. Can I ask you something about the, yeah. the culture of the monarchy in yeah. England? Because I had seen on a comedy show, an American comedian was doing a performance in front of a British audience, and he made a crack about how... He made some crack about, like, down with the queen. Mm -hmm. And this was about eight, nine years ago, I think I saw it on TV. 
and the British crowd gasped. Yeah. They have reverence for her. Where does that reverence come from? We're Amer- I don't know if I can perceive of that from with my American brain. Well, you know, it's, um, I think part of it is her, particularly, because there's been monarchs who were extremely well disliked. But, you know, she was a young woman who did not want to be queen, would not have been queen had her uncle not married an American divorcee, and also kind of been a Nazi, which didn't help. But um, <laughs> that, that was not does. included. Have you seen the King's speech? They brushed over that in the King's they speech. They did, because that, he, he was. But, um, you know, she gave up her life where she could have really had a great life. And then Philip gave up being probably Admiral of the Fleet. And, you know, she is very seldom, other than the Diana years, maybe put a foot wrong. And I think that people just recognize that World War II, you know, and her parents uh, not leaving England when the, you know, when the, when they bombed Buckingham Palace, they were in the palace. Um, They tried to get them to move the princesses to Canada. They didn't. They stayed at Windsor Castle. She became a mechanic in the war. So I think it may be a little bit unique to her, but I also think the British people understand that the monarchy as it's evolved since Victoria has been a monarchy of stability, unity, and it's the one thing that never changes. You know, we get a new president every four years. We get a new governor every four years. Um, I think that, um, you know, and they do polls. And even in this day, 78 to 80 percent are still strong for the monarchy. Um, I don't think they're thrilled about Charles, but Charles is pushing 80. <laughs> but um, I think William will be king one day. And he'll be a very different modern monarch. But um, and, and it's in the tourism. I mean, if you haven't been to England, I mean, you know, paying to see Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, the Tower of London, Edinburgh Castle. I mean, that I think the sovereign grant costs the taxpayers three pounds a piece a year and brings in 20 billion dollars a year. I mean, it's the best bang for the buck they can get. I think William might be on a similar trajectory. Uh, all those stories about him serving yeah. uh, and, and uh, how well received, justifiably yeah. so, that was by the people. Yeah, That could be a thing. Because the, the way you describe it, it sounds like they revere her clearly. But yeah. they revere her as a symbol of them as a culture rather yeah. than, well, in addition to her yeah. as a human. When I was in England and um, whatever year it was, Trump was president, just became president. We got in a cab and it was just typical. I mean, it's like a central casting cabbie. And he goes, where are you guys from? And we blokes from, and we said, America go, Oh, we love Donald Trump. He drove us for 20 minutes. We were going to the tower of London actually. And he was like, you're so lucky you have tower, Donald Trump. If we just had Donald Trump as prime minister and the queen, it would be perfect. And he saw that as perfectly, you know. And, um, That's interesting. But he, he was your typical. And, of course, the great thing about London cabbies, they have to study and know every street and every street corner in London before they can get their license. Huh. They don't use GPS. You know, if, if you've been in a cab in New York, you're lucky to get there. Their cabs are completely clean. They're spotless. And the cabbie knows every corner. And you can say, we're looking at a pub. It's so-and-so and so-and-so. Oh, he's just, you're talking about the Churchill. It's, you know, and, he took, and we went to the Churchill pub, which only serves Thai food, which was interesting. That is interesting. But it's served Thai food since the 40s. <laughs> and it was, by the way, it was fantastic. We went twice. But, the Churchill. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we can get a, that would be, that would be, a, I think that'd be a stretch for an endorsement. <laughs> I got to get a Maybe you could, maybe you could work out something for us for big whiskeys though. Yeah. <laughs> I got a little excited because I thought you were about to do an English accent. Uh, I know I can't, but so I, I backed away. <laughs> I can barely do an American accent. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure I speak for both of us here. We just really appreciate your time and, and really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Well, thank you. I did too. Um, something that uh, we started doing now is, um, we'd like you to offer up, is there someone on campus um, that we may not have access to or not be aware of that you think would be a great guest that, that, that we should get to know better that might have some interesting topic that they would be able to talk about? That's a great question. Um, we have a lot of interesting people. I don't know if he has a great topic, but he's just a funny guy is Rob Rector. Rob Rector. You know, I had, th- I had mentioned, I was thinking about that because I was actually, I was talking to, I believe, 
it may have been my wife. I was talking out of my mouth and somebody mm -hmm. was listening. And I was talking about how just about everybody I work for at OTC has an outstanding sense of humor. I'm yeah. close to Greg French, but over Greg French oh, yeah. is uh, Dr. Renner. Dr. Renner has a, is really mm -hmm. funny. Um, I, uh, Dr. McGrady has a great sense she, of humor. Dr. Does. Barrett may be the funniest person I know. I think Dr. Barrett is the funniest person at OTC. But I Not was, always intentionally. I, <laughs> I, I will say that I have I don't know Dr. Rector very well. However, is, is, he's not doctor. My so. apologies. Yeah. I don't know Rec, uh, Mr. Rector very well, but uh, I have been told by everybody who works under him he's hysterical. and he does impressions not well okay. <laughs> well he does a couple well but um and he will never uh, ned reynolds had him on a few years ago on a new year's eve thing just because nobody else would come on as harry carey for a solid hour if you haven't really fantastic yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't really do harry carey he does will ferrell doing harry carey Talks oh, about spare yeah. ribs and the moon. Uh, and we're going to have to have Rob Rector on. <laughs> we are for parlor tricks. I've picked the topic. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have learned a lot today. Um, obviously, there are quite a few things about the monarchy, um, uh, American history and presidents, uh, and kind of your, your life and, and, and getting to know you. Uh, Andrew, did you know that? I did not know that. I didn't know that either. Well, now you do. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. 